0: As the choir and the orchestra depart for their seats, I have a confession to make. That confession is that I am going to preach another man's sermon this morning. Now, before you brand me a plagiarizer, that man is the Apostle Peter, and that sermon is from the book of Acts. But before we go there, I want to see if I can tie up some of the details that we have discussed and discovered over this week, beginning last Lord's Day with the passion of the Christ beginning on Palm Sunday. That, of course, is the day in which Christians celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And if you would, turn to the passage that we looked at last time in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We can't go through all of the details of the Passion Week of Christ, but as we spoke about the triumphal entry of Christ, I do want to give us a tie-in to what we'll be discussing this morning's hour. In Mark chapter 11, verse 1, you remember that Jesus was going to Jerusalem via Bethpage and Bethany, and you remember he asked two of his disciples to grab a colt who had never been ridden upon, and they did just as the Lord had asked him. And we find in Mark chapter 11, verse 8, the crowd, when Jesus makes this triumphal entry, as Mark records, and many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You remember last time that I said that when Jesus and his disciples went into the temple, they discovered that there was no coronation service for Christ. There was no one who was willing at that moment or even understanding that Christ was coming into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. In fact, It appears that most Jews of the time, and certainly these as his disciples, were assuming that when Jesus was to come triumphantly into Jerusalem, he would come with a sword. No doubt that was in the mind of Peter as he attempted to cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it apparently was the case that so many Jews of that day also believed that when the Messiah was to come, the Messiah was going to bring in a revolutionary kind of triumph, the kind of triumph that didn't mean a suffering servant, but a triumphant Lord who would bring a sword, and through his insurrection and his leadership, Jerusalem would be captured, the kingdom of God in the clan of Israel would come, and Israel would reign with their Messiah forever and ever. And of course, we know that that wasn't the case. Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, and he looks around, and no one is affirming him as Lord. And as it was late, the text says, they left and went back to Bethany. Of course, you know that the following day, they returned from Bethany into Jerusalem, and one of the first things that Jesus did was to clean the temple, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Of course, this morning we don't have time to go through all of the other events. This is Monday. Of course, through the rest of this week, Jesus continues teaching. It may even be that his cleansing of the temple here adds fuel to the fire of the minds of the disciples, certainly that Jesus again is going to use force. And of course, that's not the case. Jesus agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane, nearing, of course, the end of this week. And when he leaves that garden under arrest, because Judas has betrayed him, he goes through a series of unjust trials and right at the pinnacle of the agony of this week, at least as far as the disciples and their view of it, Jesus is stripped and beaten and taken with the cross down the Via Dolorosa and is taken to the mound we call Calvary and it is there of course that we know that the disciples all flee and jesus as it were is left alone now turn to chapter 15 of mark's gospel at about noon on friday matthew 50 or excuse me mark 15:33 says And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, about three o'clock. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? you were with us on Friday night, you heard me teach from Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, verse 1, this is the very statement of Jesus who is now hanging upon that cross. Listen to Psalm 22 as it speaks of this very hour. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you so far, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. As I said Friday night, this might very well have been not only the statement of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, but his thinking And as we go through Psalm 22, as we did Friday night, we discovered more of the thinking of Jesus as He was on that cross. One of those things that He no doubt was thinking and was even recorded about Him, verse 14 of Psalm 22, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And regarding those who were betraying him and those who were crucifying him, both Jews and Romans alike, especially the Roman soldiers who were doing the very act, Psalm 22:16 says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And Jesus says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And with that, the crucifixion occurs. Jesus yields up his spirit. He says it is finished. And he voluntarily gives up his life for the sake of sinners like you and like me. And somewhere between the two sentences of Psalm 22, verse 21, maybe even an interlude because of Jesus being in the tomb for three days, the triumph is written, Psalm 22, 21b. You have rescued me he cried to him. Now, of course, you might be asking the question, well, when did he cry to him? Well, yes, it is true that he cried to him when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's not the kind of cry that you would assume God the Father is specifically answering there. That's the cry that Jesus is experiencing as he is being abandoned by God to bear the weight, the full weight of sin upon the sinners of the world. Yes, of course that was a cry, but there's another cry, and that cry is, oh God, save me, help me, deliver me. That was an utterance, that was a cry of Jesus. And in fact, look at the book of Hebrews chapter 5, and you'll see this. This again is a divine commentary, on the cries and the prayers and the utterances of Christ all throughout his life and certainly now in the pinnacle of degradation, Christ cries out to God the Father. Notice Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. A most interesting verse. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him, to God the Father, who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence, His reverence for God. You see, in the days of Jesus' flesh... No less in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying, as it were, drops of blood. And certainly no doubt in his cry of dereliction on the cross and no doubt even through the experience of the entirety of the cross, there are loud tears and loud cries for Jesus to be delivered. And because God heard these cries... He was able to save him from death because of Christ's reverence of God. Now, some of you might be asking the question, but wait a minute. If Jesus himself is God, God in human flesh, then why does any of this have to take place? And why is it that Jesus himself is a person who cries? Throughout the entirety of his human existence, why is it that Jesus himself has tears? Why is it that he appears, whether it's in the garden or on the cross, to have lost his grip? Well, it must be so because Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, read there, although he was in equality with God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience. Even as the God-man, even growing up and learning from His teachers and from His rabbis and going through all of His life, including that which was His death upon the cross, Christ is learning obedience through the things that He suffers. And if you look at chapter 2, the end of verse 9, it says, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You see, suffering as a prelude to glory. So that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, In bringing many sons to glory, that's you and me, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was through the perfection of suffering that Jesus Christ bore what He bore all the way through and upon the cross. For He, Christ, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one origin or one source... That is why He, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Guess what? That's a quotation from Psalm 22:22, And there is no other recording of this utterance of Jesus anywhere in the Gospels which lets us know that Jesus Christ indeed was the embodiment of Psalm 22. For he quotes it, and the writer to Hebrew quotes it as coming from Jesus himself. Jesus Christ, whether the disciples understood it or knew it at all, especially at the point of their desertion in the garden and all the way through the cross itself, and even into Acts chapter 1, they do not understand. They do not grasp why their Messiah has to suffer as He did. They don't understand why it is that Jesus must suffer and die before glory. They did not recognize it. They did not understand it. And they, like us, do not understand until the Holy Spirit must come down and enlighten our eyes and give us a vision of the real Christ who is both the one who comes initially as the suffering servant and then one who comes in the clouds of glory and honor to judge the living and the dead. Oh, I wish I could tell you this morning that with all that Jesus taught and with all of His discipleship of the twelve and others and with His going in to Jerusalem on those palm branches as the triumphant King who then is arrested and tried unjustly and who hangs on that cross is something that they would all understand and that we ourselves would understand in a moment the first time we hear it. But it isn't true, is it? Most of us, the first time we heard that story, did not understand it at all. Our eyes were blind. We could not grasp the significance of the Jesus who was born to die. I'll show you that the disciples didn't understand. Look at Acts chapter 1. They should have understood. They should have understood everything that Jesus was saying. They knew their Old Testaments. They had been raised in rabbinic Judaism. Most of them, save the Gentiles, they, they knew what was going to occur. They they should have known it. All of these quotations from the Old Testament and Jesus is fulfilling them to the letter, they should have understood that. They should have understood that very well. And yet notice in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, after the disciples and others, about 120 of them, have assembled just where Jesus had told them, Verse 6 says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, even in that question, they did not even there understand, even after the resurrection, that Jesus was not at that moment going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Maybe they even implied by this, when are we going to take up our swords? When are we going to fight? If you are raised from the dead, is it now that you will take over? They should have understood this. They should have understood. In Luke chapter 8, we have the account of Jesus falling asleep in the boat with these disciples, and a fierce wind coming upon them. And the Bible says there that they woke Jesus up and said, Save us! And the Bible says in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus rebuked the wind and rebuked the waves, so much so that there was an immediate calmness. In fact, even the ripples from the water did not go all the way to the shore. Mighty God was in their boat, and surely they would have understood that when He used that term, I rebuke you, wind and waves, that was the same word in noun form that's used in Psalm 104 to speak of God the Father rebuking the water. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And here in Acts chapter 1, they are not even as yet understanding the plan of God through the suffering of Christ. Notice in Acts chapter 1, Jesus' response, verse 7. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They did not yet know nor did they understand that the Holy Spirit was to come upon them and that they were to be the apostles and prophets that would lay the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ, something unknown to them. And they didn't yet understand all of the realities of what was to come because the Holy Spirit had not come upon them. And yet, at a moment in time, this is what happened. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now my sermon. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and according to verse 15, about 120 of them. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, not Christians, but devout men nonetheless, God-fearers, God-followers, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own tongue or language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... said they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. Even in the midst of the mighty works of God, there are doubters and mockers and others who are just simply amazed. And the reason why they don't yet understand is because the Holy Spirit has not yet fallen, controlling them. But it does, Peter, and i dare say that in a moment in time the holy spirit opens up peter's mind to understand virtually all of what he did not understand before so much so that he begins to preach and this is what he says acts 2:14 but peter standing with the 11 standing with the disciples the apostles lifted up his voice and addressed them men of judea and all who dwell in jerusalem Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter prophesies what Joel said, the ancient of old, and prophesies both what was happening right then and there, tongues and prophecy and what will happen later at the end of the age. And now he preaches directly to them and he says this, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth what I have rehearsed with you this morning. And then the next four words of our English text says what? God raised Him up. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Remember those words of the writer to the Hebrews? Jesus cried. He uttered a loud voice, Deliver me! And the Lord God did it. The Lord God raised Jesus up from the dead because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Why? Every other human being who dies, dies because they don't have the power to overcome it. But Jesus has the power to overcome death because He is sinless and He is our Savior, our God in human flesh. And as I quoted Psalm 22, as though it were Jesus Himself talking through David in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter now says about David in another psalm, Psalm 16, verses 8 and 11, For David says concerning Christ, don't miss that, David says concerning Christ, here are Christ's words, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Don't forget also, Psalm 22, my tongue is glued to the jaw of my mouth. That's Christ on the cross. This is Christ in resurrection. This is Christ who says, Now with my tongue I will rejoice. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or the grave or death or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Jesus speaking through David in Psalm 16. And now Peter quoting the Lord Jesus' words through the prophet David, not just a king but a prophet. And now Peter says, verse 29, Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What's the point? David was a king. Yes. The king of Israel. The mighty king of Israel. The sweet psalmist of Israel. And one in whom these disciples and others in Judea and in Jerusalem are saying it will be the throne of David that is raised up. Maybe even some believing that David himself will be resurrected to serve as king and judge. As prophet. And he says no. No. No, David was buried because he died, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, his bones are still there. Being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on that throne, and that of course is the fulfillment of God's promise to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there would be one coming after David. And please don't miss verse 31. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. David didn't understand all that he was writing. And he may have understood a good portion or he may have understood only a little. But he was a prophet and he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Psalm 16. That he was not abandoned to death, nor did his flesh see corruption. And then I love this, verse 32. This Jesus, Peter says, God raised up. Second time he's mentioned it. And of that we are all Witnesses. And now Peter is a witness under the full power and control of the Holy Spirit, and he's preaching the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Christ has poured out this. That that they were experiencing, the ability for people to hear the gospel of Christ in their own tongue, their native language, from people who'd never studied that language before. This was a miracle of God. People were hearing the gospel in their own language from people who had never studied those languages before. This is a bonafide miracle. This is the beginning of the church. Christ has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And another contrast between David and Christ. For David did not ascend into the heavens, as Christ did, implied, but he himself says, The Lord, the Lord God, Jehovah, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's precisely what God the Father did in raising Jesus from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin. And here is the appeal. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, King and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the appeal. That's the climax of the sermon. That's the apex. That's the command. That's the demand that those, even those who were there, even those who were experiencing the very moment of Christ's own crucifixion and the gathering some days later here in this place and are hearing now Peter fully controlled fully influenced by the Holy Spirit preaching the gospel of Christ and saying that you now know, you must understand that Jesus Christ is declared to you King and Messiah. Now, you would assume that they might still lack the understanding. But the Holy Spirit is opening minds and hearts to understand. And notice the response, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Conviction. The Holy Spirit opens their minds to understand the truth of Peter's preaching. And they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn, turn from your sin, turn from your lack of understanding, turn from your sinfulness and be baptized. That is an outward sign of an inward cleansing. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is an appeal right at the moment because they don't know what their eternal destiny is going to be like. They don't know if that at that very moment they will be condemned to an eternal hell. And so Peter, with an emphasis and exclamation point in answer to their question, Brothers, what shall we do? says, Repent and turn from your sins and be baptized as an outward demonstration of the reality of your repentance and that you, for the sake of your own life and your own sin and your own bondage, would be forgiven by God and would be blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And apparently there was a marvelous effect. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. An incredible response. Wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit to open up blind eyes and deaf ears. Now you would assume that if you have heard now a sermon that I have taken from Peter himself, that if you're in that same condition, having blind eyes and deaf ears and not seeing the reality that Jesus didn't come in his first coming to be a an insurrectionist with a sword a person who was going to overthrow the Roman, impression, uh, the, the Roman oppression simply because he was the king. Now you understand, and some of you may be like at no other time, that Jesus Christ came in his first coming to die so that he might be raised again from the dead. That's why we celebrate what we celebrate on this very day. That Jesus Christ was born. And that he was born in a manger. In a place that was forsaken. No comforts. No accoutrements. No poise. No pristine beauty around the coming of this king. And Jesus Christ in that ignominious birth, begins to learn as a toddler, and then as a youth, and then as a young man, and then as a fully grown man, his mission, and his mission was to come not simply as a king bringing a sword, but as a servant who will come to die via a Roman execution on a cross that was the worst form of execution and the most hideous form of death at that time. And there are those who even knowing that fact still yet do not believe that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, or any Messiah in their thinking would ever have to do such a thing. And there are those especially those who are Jews, continue to look for a Messiah, continue to look for someone to come, someone who will not undergo the kind of ignominious life and death of this man, but someone who will come and who will surely bring the redemption longed for to the children of Israel. And yet, my friends, I declare to you this morning that it is Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ did die and that Jesus Christ is coming again and that He's coming again with a sword so that He might smite the nations because He has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And when He comes, He will come to gather all of those who, like in Peter's day, have repented of their sins, placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have abandoned all self-effort and who have recognized that Jesus did in fact come to die, and yet it was the very death of Christ that enabled Jesus Christ to come again as Lord and Judge and who will bring us to be with Himself forever and ever. That's who Jesus was and is. And you and I are called upon to believe the report about Him, Even as Peter says, He was raised from the dead of which we were all witnesses. There are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there were eyewitnesses there, as Acts 1 depicts it, in the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the angel said, He will come back to you just in the way He ascended from you. And He will judge the living and the dead And He will bring to glory all of those who have loved His appearing. Do you love the appearing of Jesus Christ? You say, well, it hasn't happened yet. It has by those who by faith are looking for it and are so assured of it and are so certain that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and that He is the one who will come and deliver us ultimately and finally and take us even out of our bodies which decay and are like David in the tomb so that one day our bodies and our souls will be reunited so that Jesus Christ will be ever lovely to us And we will have no more sin and no more disease and no more sickness. And Jesus Christ will be our ever lovely, sovereign Savior forever and ever and ever. Are you looking for that day? Do you want that day to come? Even as the Apostle John says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You say, well, what do I do? If I'm one among those number that Peter preached to and that I'm preaching to you now, and you say, but Brother Lance, what do I do? You repent. You turn. You turn from your sin. You turn from following your own life and your own pursuits and your own self-aggrandizement and your own glory and you turn from those things and you fall on your face as it were before Jesus Christ and you ask Him to forgive you of your sins on the basis of His death and His burial and His resurrection and you ask Him for the forgiveness of sins and to those who do such things, Jesus says, I will never cast out. And if you do that, you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit who will then radically change your life for the better. And you will be able to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. In Romans chapter 10 verse 9 it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. I say to you, like Peter said of old, be saved, be delivered from this crooked generation. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, through the travail of of Jesus Christ through the utterances of His cries to be delivered you have heard Him and since death could not contain Him and even though He suffered excruciatingly You delivered Him from an eternity in the tomb because He is God in human flesh. And He was manifested among us to live a life of perfection in total obedience to the law of God. And in that perfection and through the crucifixion of that life. He is the one for whom we look now for our only hope of salvation. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. O oh Lord. Thank You for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to confirm that He is the Son of God. And we rejoice and we affirm that the writer to Hebrews says, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Oh, I pray our Lord God, that there is no one here who fails to obey Him. And to obey Him would be in that obedience to repent and to believe that Jesus is Lord and that You have raised Him from the dead. O Lord, cut to the quick sinful hearts so that they might believe this message. And that we might together sing the Hallelujah Chorus through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In whose name we pray. Amen.